guys. Appreciate you guys leading us in worship this morning. Let's pray before we jump into God's Word. Father God, again, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time. Thank you that we can worship and praise you this morning. Pray now that as we look into your Word, Father God, that you would lead and guide that um, the words of my mouth will be yours, God, and uh, pray that our hearts would be open, your Holy Spirit would teach us from your Word this morning what you would have for us to take home with. We pray it all in your Son's name. Amen. Well, this morning as we continue our summer series that we are entitled Back to the Basics, today we're going to be looking at the topic of authority and the Bible. As we know, we're going through this whole summer covering topics that really are basic foundational to the Christian faith, but things that we often kind of get away from a little bit and that we've realized that when we get away from those, those are the very things that sometimes cause us to wander even in bigger areas of our faith. So just so you know, I want you to know my goal for our time this morning is that we will all go away with really a richer and deeper appreciation for the importance and the value of God's Word in our lives. Uh, My premise here this morning is that only in viewing God's Word as the source of ultimate authority in our lives do we find true fulfillment in life. Let me say that again. Only in viewing God's Word as the source of ultimate authority in our lives do we find true fulfillment in life. Now, when I say the Bible is a source of ultimate authority, I mean that really it's the ultimate standard of authority for God's people because God alone, only He is the ultimate in authority. He's the ultimate authority out there. And He has revealed really His authority to us through His creation and through His Word, the Word that He has given us that by the work of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what the Bible it says, says about itself. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that a man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, this term here, it says, breathe, breathed out by God, or in some of your versions, it says, God breathed, really is used to describe the Scripture, describe the Bible as inspired by or really distinct from any other writing that is out there that could, has ever been done. It means that every word in the Bible comes from God. Now, we're not going to spend any much time this morning talking about the whole issue of inerrancy of the Scripture and all those things. What we're going to be mainly talking about is the authority of Scripture in our lives. Second Peter, um, in chapter 1, says this. It says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy, this word prophecy here, really, it means a supernatural declaration of God's instruction or God's words, something that he has given supernaturally. It says, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone else, someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That does cover some top, the topic of inerrancy and is Scripture truly inspired by God? That's what the Bible says, that it is. You see, God chose human authors to communicate his purpose and to reveal himself to us. 
And it's really cool. It's the, it, the cool thing is he didn't make them robots either. He didn't just put them in a trance and say, all right, what I'd say. No, he used them in their personalities and all the things. And we see that as we read scripture, it comes out. We see their personalities, their fears. We see all their emotions. It comes out when we read them, when we read the Bible. Now, when we talk about the Bible and its authority in our lives, it's important that we understand the Bible's claim for authority really in light of other sources of authority that really often we prefer or that we heed or we obey, okay? And I just want to cover a couple of those. I believe really that there's four. There's probably a whole lot out there, but these are the four that came to my mind to thinking of four such authorities, okay? First one you see on, there, on the slide there, it says, is our friends or our relationships, now, we have friends, we have, we have people, we have certain people in our lives that we go to for advice or that we've really come to rely on to give us direction in our lives, which is, that's a good thing. It's a good thing to have those people. Yet for many people, the advice or the direction they get from somebody else is the final authority for them. What they says, that's it. I trust them and them alone. Another one is a source of, second source of authority is our experience or our history. I mean, since we've always done something a certain way or we've always experienced something in a certain way in the past, whether positive or negative, that has become the greatest indicator of truth. And therefore, that's authority. That's how people have treated me. That's how I'm going to see this thing. That's how this has happened in my life. This is what, this is what I'm going to base authority on. That's what I'm going to base things on how I will live my life. Third, third authority um, is information. Oh, my goodness. We are bombarded with an endless amount of information, aren't we? Uh, it's at our fingertips. We have, we've come to rely on, I mean, really think about it. Think how much we've come to rely on websites, certain TV shows, news agencies, um, what, else, what else? Uh, apps that we have, uh, blogs, all sorts of things that we've come to realize that's authority in our lives for our information. We're relying on those things, which oftentimes are false or at very least they're somewhat flawed or inaccurate that we, yet they become, it becomes an authority in our lives. And the fourth one, which I really believe is the most prevalent of all is how we feel or our emotions. We feel discouraged, or we feel hurt, or we're slighted, or we're insecure, or we're feeling confident or sure of ourselves, or so we're relieved about something. And those feelings and emotions become our authority. Have you seen this in the world? This is how I feel, so this must be right. If I feel so strongly about it, it must be true. It has to be. Our emotions are always clamoring to be our authority, always, and we have to remember that. What we need, though, really, is a standard of measure to be able to understand if what we are feeling or what we are experiencing or what we are learning or following, we need to know if that's really true. What we need is this grid. We need a grid against which to put each of these different authorities to, to understand if that is how God has truly called us to live. Now, the good news is, I'm coming from the premise here, obviously, good news is that we have the Bible. We have God's word, which serves as that standard of measure or that grid as the ultimate authority of how 
God has called us to live. So, all right, now that we've seen the standard of the, we've seen the, understand the standard of the Bible, understand its authority in light of other sources of authority, and we've been able to, we can see that the Bible is reliable for its sources of authority. What we're going to look do this morning is we're going to look at how, how being obedient to the authority of the Bible actually practically plays out in our lives. Because if we're going to make it the ultimate authority in our lives, it better play out in some kind of positive way, right? It needs to play out some way that makes sense. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to spend the rest of our time looking at the first 16 verses of Psalm 119. Okay, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, and it's it's part of the longest book of the Bible. Okay, a few things that are interesting to note here is this, this whole Psalm 119 is arranged in an acrostic pattern. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew, ancient Hebrew alphabet, and this psalm is divided into 22 sections of eight verses each. And each section starts with the next consecutive letter of the ancient Hebrew alphabet. Now, it's also important to understand, and this is what I found it was helpful for me in my studies this week, it's helpful to understand that the book of Psalms, especially Psalm 119, uses multiple words to describe God's word. Okay, multiple words that really, in essence, are describing God's word. And I've got a, got a slide that I want to put up there for you guys. It kind of gives, just gives a list of the different names that are used for God's word. And we're not going to go through all that, but we see, you'll see that law, word, testimony, commandment, statute, precept, way, path, judgment, all these are basically synonyms for God's word, okay? So when you see that, you don't know, oh, now what's he talking about now? Oh, is he talking about something else? No. He's basically talking about God's word. So let's look at the first two sections here. These first two sections of the 22 sections um, in Psalm 119, we're going to see how being obedient to the authority of God's word practically plays out in our lives, okay? We're actually going to look at four Four distinct results of being obedient to God's word. In the first section, it's titled Aleph, is the first letter. We are, we're going to see the first two results. And in the second section is Bet, we're going to see the final two results. So let's start by reading um, 119 verses 1 through 3, first of all, okay? Blessed are those whose way is blameless. Who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who keep who seek him with all with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. Now see, we see in these verses that the psalmist is equating obedience to God's word with a pattern of life that's conformed to God's standard. In other words, when we're willfully obedient. This is what he's saying here is when we're willfully obedient to God's word, the result will be a life that is blessed. Okay, that's the first one. The result will be a life that is blessed. So often, you know, don't you look at other people sometimes? We look at their lives. We look at what they have, their good fortune, their health, their prosperity, uh, their loving family, their success, and we say that, though, man, they have a blessed life, don't we? We say that all the time. We hear that all the time. Yet a blessed life has much less to do with these things and more to do with the true joy, the happiness, and the contentment 
that comes with living and enjoying the life of true obedience to our master and to our king. Now, these words blameless, we see in there, blameless. He says, blessed are those who weigh is blameless. We think, that's impossible. Well, really, what this word blameless or in verse 3 where he says, those that do no wrong here, he says, they're not referring to somebody who's perfect. Happy or blessed is a person who never makes a mistake. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is referring to someone who strive to live in constant obedience to God's words. Not strive to be perfect. There's a difference. Striving to be obedient to God's word. The psalmist is describing people who, because of their relationship with God, have the kind of life that other people want to aspire to. We see that. We go, I want that. Because the way that they live their life, others are, people are challenged and inspired to deepen their walk and their relationship with God. Have you ever known somebody like that? Ever seen somebody like that? Ever been around somebody like that that really encourages you, inspires you to want to be more like God? I had someone like that. About, he's just a little under a decade older than I am. And when I was... Just out of high school, uh, this guy, I got to know this guy. I got to spend a significant amount of time with him. And this guy really challenged and inspired me with the way he lived. Dave was always putting his focus of his life in line with God's word. And everything he did, he was, a, he was a minor league umpire for baseball. It was a side job of his. And he was always talking about the stories about that, but he always wove in, wove in God. But it wasn't like in this biblical nerdy way, you know, how like, you know, he's trying to bring in Bible stuff and God talk, but it was in a cool, he was cool. He was a total surfer dude and he was a really cool guy. And, and I, was, I was attracted to him. I was attracted to his lifestyle. That, oh my gosh, I want to be, I want that. I wanted to be like Dave. I really did in so many ways. I wanted to, really, I wanted to know God like Dave knew God. That's what it was. That was so attractive to me. I, I want to be like, I want to be like that. Well, Dave has been a missionary in the Philippines for 35 years. And just an inspiration, incredible inspiration to me back then and still uh, to this day. Now, the psalmist, the psalmist says that this lifestyle, what this, this thing that attracted me to want to be more, want to know God more because I saw it in Dave, he's saying this is a result of something. It's a result of seeking God with our whole heart. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So what does that mean? What does that mean to seek God with our whole heart? The word heart here, as many of you know, in the Bible especially refers to really the core of who a person is, their inner being. It's part of us really where our emotions and our will and our desire and all of our understanding dwells. So really to seek God with our whole heart means to make a conscious choice to really direct our emotions, our thoughts, and our desires towards him. And that's not natural, is it? It's just not. It goes, and really, it goes beyond what we experience here on Sunday morning. It's easy to focus on God here. That's a piece of cake. 
except when things are falling apart and it's a lot, you know, that just happens, whatever. But really, this is an easy time to focus on God. Or when you're in a Bible study or when you're in a class over there or when you're with someone talking about spiritual things, that's an, that's an easy time to do it. But really, it needs to be a conscious choice that we do that goes beyond this time. It means moment, it really means to moment by moment intentionally, really intentionally allow God to rule and reign in every aspect of our lives. So often it's easy to say, I have my spiritual life, I have my family, and I have my work. And those things maybe a little bit intersect because our family goes to church together. So this or whatever, they intersect a little bit here and there. Instead of what he's saying, you know, with your whole heart, when you seek him with your whole heart, that means he's involved in everything. Your job, your home, your, every, your frustrations, everything he's involved in. That's when we experience the joy and happiness that this psalmist is talking about that comes with living with a life of obedience to God's word. Well, let's look at the, let's look at the next one, verses four through eight. This is the second result for obedience is in four through eight. He says, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart. When I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Statutes, do not utterly forsake me. So we see right here the result, the next result of being obedient to God's word is that we may, that, so that we may experience God's goodness and grace. This is another result of being obedient to God's word. The psalmist, look what he does here. First, that he acknowledges that God commands us to diligently keep and obey his word. Remember, God is the ultimate authority. And I got to tell you, this is a little side note here. I got to tell you, this is a powerful, powerful truth in our world for the world, because the world and, and many of us have a hard time acknowledging that he is the ultimate authority, stops with him. We have a hard time with that, but he is God's authority. He has commanded us that we obey his authority. But the great thing about it is, the great thing about obeying God's words or his commands, as he said here, it's, it's not intended to be a chore. <laughs> a lot of times we think, oh, I got to do it. Okay, the, God, the Bible's, the God, Christianity is all about do's and don'ts. You know, so often Christians are known more for, we're known more for what we're against than what we're for. That's not what he's saying here. That's not what he's saying at all. Actually, it's tremendously freeing to obey God's commandments because they're for our good. We've been talking about that. How, remember last week we talked about worship, how much God loves us and how wonderful it is to worship him. First John chapter 5, verse 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. You want to, we love God? We keep his commandments. I love this. And his commandments are not burdensome. It's not a chore. It is not a chore to keep God's commands, to be obedient to God's law. Does it go against our, go against our flesh? It sure does but it's not something we go, darn it. It's not that way. The psalmist then, I love it, he moves into, then after saying that, okay, I'm good, I need to do this, he moved into his expressing his desire to obey God's word. I love that. He wants to obey God's word because he is well aware of the consequences of not doing it. Not because he thinks God's a bad guy, 
but he knows there's consequences for not being obedient to God's word. Like us, he is very aware of his propensity to let other things besides God's word be an authority in his life. Things that can ultimately turn him and cause him to disobey God's word. He's aware, he's very well, well aware that unless he remains steadfast, steadfast and firm in his obedience to God's word, he will, and look what he says here, that he will experience humiliation and shame. Humiliation, yeah, that's what he doesn't want. He doesn't want to experience humiliation and shame. Now, this shame isn't a shame that comes from God. It's not like God's going, oh, how could you? Shame on you. That's not at all what he's saying. God doesn't shame us at all when we sin or when we fall short of his standards. Nothing can be further from the truth. The shame that the psalmist is talking about here is what we experience when we begin to believe that our mistakes and that our shortcomings define who we are and how God sees us. I've made these mistakes. I've done these things. This is who I am. And God must see me that way. That's the shame that he's talking about that he knows will come when he is disobedient. He doesn't have to worry, though, about how God thinks about him. And this is exactly, though, where the enemy wants to take us. Man, the enemy of our souls craves, if he could get us off of thinking about how God views us as the apple of his eye, even in the midst of our worst mistakes, because of his grace and his goodness and what his son did for us, he's got us. Found this guy right here, uh, licensed counselor that I was reading about, Robert Caldwell. He writes this. This is a long quote, but I thought it was really good about shame. Shame is the inner experience of being not wanted. It is feeling worthless, rejected, cast out. Guilt is believing that one has done something bad. Shame is believing that one is bad. Shame is believing that one is not loved because one is not lovable. Shame always carries with it the sense that there is nothing one can do to purge its burdensome and toxic presence. Shame is so painful, so debilitating, that persons develop thousands of coping strategies, conscious and unconscious, numbing and, and, dest numbing and destructive to avoid its tortures. Shame is the worst possible thing that can happen because shame in its profoundest meaning conveys that one is not fit to live in one's community. You see, when God's word has final authority in our lives, and then when we see that, when then only then, only when we view it that way are we able to embrace this truth, this powerful truth about who we are as God's kids. That's the only time, only when you see it, because if other people have authority... Oh, that person, I, know if, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I can get around people, especially in my past, and get around them that have brought me shame or I felt shameful around them, and instantly, ooh. You ever have that happen? You get around people or situations, and all of a sudden it brings back that, that, sense, that sense of shame. That's totally veering from, the truth, from God's truth. Because the truth is that there is no shame and guilt anymore. The enemy wants us to wallow in that guilt and shame. That's his love. That's his joy. Especially when we disobey God, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm just not a good Christian. I'm not, I'm not good anymore. God, how, how could God love me? 
That's exactly what the enemy wants us. That's where he wants us to, that's where he wants our head. That's where he wants it to be. The psalmist is reminding us here that when we fix our eyes on this powerful truth that is found in God's word, we will be able to, but here's that word again, be steadfast in living out this power, that power of the cross that has provided us grace, provided us forgiveness of our sins, and really cleansed us all from this guilt and this shame. If you're feeling guilt and you're feeling shame because of your past or things that you've done, that's not God. That's the enemy trying to keep you in a place from seeing the exact opposite. He's trying to keep you from seeing how incredibly forgiven and loved and special and wonderful you are because of his son, because of what Jesus did for us. We can hold our head up high and not have to feel shame. And that's why the psalmist wants this word so much. Because of this, we see here in verse seven that the psalmist can't help but break out in praise for knowing this about God's word. He's starting to understand this. Oh, I, 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 you know what? If I obey your word, I don't have to worry about sin and shame because you know, I understand who I am in you. And all of a sudden he starts to well up. Remember last week? I don't know if you felt it last week. Man, the Holy Spirit was working last week because we were talking about worship last week. We worshiped, and then we talked about it, and we got to experience it. It was, it was phenomenal, because that's what happens when you start to understand the truth of who we are in Christ. We see in seven, he just breaks out. And he, can't, he just can't stop himself. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said this, be sure that he who prays for holiness will one day praise for happiness. Shame having vanished, silence broken, and the formerly silent man declares, I will praise thee. You just can't help it. That's where he goes. The psalmist ends this section by proclaiming his desire to obey God's word as he longs to be close. That's what he's saying here. He wants to be close to God. You see, that's the result of experiencing God's goodness and grace. When we experience God's goodness and grace, we have more and more of a longing to be obedient and to experience a deeper and deeper intimacy with our Father. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That's why God says, obey me, obey me, because then you'll want more of me. That's how it works. Instead of, oh, I can't do it, I don't measure up. Now let's look at the next section. Next section is entitled Bet, where we will see the final two results of obedience to God's word here. Let's read verses 9 through 11. How can, a, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So the third result of obedience to God's word is the power to overcome temptation and sin. The power to overcome temptation and sin. The psalmist is telling us that in order to keep from falling to the temptation to do certain things that we know we shouldn't do, the power to overcome only happens when we do something. We have to do something. You know, victory to sin doesn't just happen. We've talked about this before. Willpower will never be enough. It just won't. And unfortunately, 
so many of us, I know I did for years in my own Christian faith, believe that if I just try harder, if I just stop doing something, if I just, then I'll be more holy. No, willpower does not work. work. He says that we are to guard our lifestyle by wholeheartedly living according to the truth of God's word. Now, what he means here is to guard means to keep watch. Remember, remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how our adversary, the, our adversary and our enemy, the devil, remember what he's doing? He's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone that he may devour. And he's, he's just waiting for us to let our guard down by wandering from or becoming indifferent to God's truth or doubting it. And, his, and his, the truth that's found in his word so that he wants to come alongside and then devour us with shame, with guilt, with pride, with selfishness. When we get away from God's truth, we just, it's so easy to go in all these different directions because that prowling lion is waiting to tear us apart constantly. The psalmist tells us that our defense, or really better yet, our offense, is to wholeheartedly seek after God's word. He's, and he says to store it up in our hearts that we might not sin against him. Or some of your versions says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I will not sin against you. Proverbs does a great job of kind of helping us with this truth. Proverbs chapter two, verses 10 to 12 says, for wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be ple pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech. This is what obedience to God's word does. This is just some of what it does. To wholeheartedly seek after God, God's word, means that we seek to understand it beyond just our head knowledge, beyond just packing it in up here. We need to see, really, we need to see God's word as a means or a channel for becoming more intimate with, with God. Does that make sense? It's not just about the information. It's about that's how we come, become more intimate. It's like anybody else, you want to get to know them, truly know them, to be intimate with them, to intimately know them. So what does this practically look like? What does it practically look like to seek after God, seek after his word, and to store it up in our hearts. Well, it means to really, what it means is to discipline ourselves, to make it a priority, to take the time to regularly meet with God in his word. Okay, pastor guilt trip coming. No, that's not what's coming. It's a priority to take the time to regularly meet with God in his word and allow, really allowing ourselves to marinate in it and let it to seep into our innermost being. It means maybe memorizing, for you, memorizing, memorizing God's word. Remember, your, your word have I treasured away, I've stored away, hidden in my heart. That's where, memor that's where Bible memorization comes in. People say, I'm no good at memorizing anything. I, you'd be surprised how many things that you can memorize or that you have memorized that if we started talking about it. Memorizing is a power thing. Meditating, just spending some time, like I said, thinking about it, thinking about what did I just read? What does that have to do with me right now? Why, you know, and we don't always understand everything we read. 
pondering over his words. John Ortberg, a local pastor here down in Menlo Park, says this, consistent spiritual discipline becomes a rhythm for living in which we can grow more intimately connected to God. My friends, it is a discipline. Reading your Bible, sitting there and taking, getting something out of it is not something that's just going to come like naturally. At least not for me, it doesn't. It takes a discipline that we have to work at. Let me challenge and encourage you by begin establishing, if you haven't already, or even beefing up your habit of regularly meeting with God in his word. And I, really, and I want to see you watch then. I want to challenge you then. Regularly start meeting with God and really let it marinate. And I want you to watch and see what happens in these areas of dealing with temptation with sin. You will see a difference. Now, I, want, I need to warn you, though. The more time you spend wholeheartedly, not just reading the Bible, but wholeheartedly seeking after God's Word and storing it up in your heart, the more you will actually be aware of how much you need Him desperately. You'll be aware of your sin, how much you fall short. Not in a guilt-shame way, but you'll just be aware of how much you need his power, the power of his word. As that light of God's word reveals and begins, his revelation to us begins to reveal to us and shine brighter in our life, the more it's going to expose the dark places. I can guarantee it. That's how God's word works. Your word is a what to my feet? lamp unto my feet. That's the whole idea. It illuminates. And painfully so sometimes, it illuminates corners that we've purposely kept dark for a good, good reason. The good news is that we also, what his word does, it reveals to us the depth of the truth, of the strength and the power that you and I have to, at our disposal to overcome temptation, to overcome sin. So you don't have to be afraid of going, oh no, I don't want to get too close because I'll really be afraid, I'll be ashamed, then, I, then I'm really going to realize how bad I am. No, you're also going to realize how good you are in him. You're going to realize how much he loves you and you're going to realize what power is act, you have access to. I'm not, now, I'm not talking the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. I'm not talking about just believe and everything good is going to happen. No, life is hard, really hard. And sometimes it gets harder as you seek Jesus. But the beauty is, the more you seek Jesus, the more you try to understand God's word, the more he reveals his power. And the more he reveals his, his, his amazing... I mean, just go back and read of the, the amazing people in the past that gave their lives or laid on the line for, for God because they had to. It's because if they didn't, they, they were just a part of the, the a society around them that just was against God. You'll see some things that these people did that was amazing how hard life was, but how much joy and power they experienced in their lives because they knew who they were. That's the beauty of, of God's word. So let's look at the last one. Last one. The fourth and final result of, being, of obedience to God's word is found in the remaining verses 12 to 16. Let's look at this real quick. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statues. I will not forget 
your word. Now, because the psalmist has, the cool thing is because he's, okay, he's experienced this blessed life, okay, and he's experienced God's goodness and grace, and he's understanding the power to overcome temptation and sin, he now becomes fixated in, on his utter delight for God's word. This is the fourth one, utter delight for God's word. He starts by expressing his adoration. See that? He, he starts expressing how much he adores God. And then he pleads with him, teach me your word. He wants God to teach him. He wants more. The psalmist wants more of God. He's hungry for God. Not because life has been easy, but because he's understanding it more and more and like, oh my gosh, I need more of this. I gotta have more. That's what he's saying. He wants to go deeper and not just in head knowledge. He's not saying, I just wanna know more about God. That's not what he's saying at all. He wants this intimacy with God, which he knows will come as revealed to him as he's in his word. Through his word is where he's going to start experiencing more and more intimacy. Not, not Praying is good, all that stuff is good, but what he's saying is, I need to be in your word. I need, to under, I need to get to know you by spending time in what you say, the things that you say. Now in verse 13, we see that he can't help but talk about God's word. He can't help but talk about it. It's only, isn't it only natural? When we're utterly delighted with something or with someone, we want to talk about it, right? Whether it's a new grandchild or a new child or a promotion at work or our team winning the NBA finals, hopefully. Um, we want to talk about these things. We can't help it. And that's what the psalmist says, I can't, I can't wait. I got I to gotta talk about this. Think about it. How much more, we want to talk about those other things in our life that happen that are really great. How much more should we want to talk about the truth of God's word that brings healing to our innermost being and a deeper intimacy with our creator? Once again, I'm not saying an easy life. I've shared with you guys some of the struggles that I've had in my life and that I still continue to have to this day. But I don't see those things as, we, as things that are strikes against me. I think see those things as things that I need God to where I need God even more because he is so, so good. When talking to his disciples about uh, what they're to do with what they're starting to learn about him and what should we do, what should we do with all this? Jesus tells them, he says, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What I've told you kind of in our little meetings around the campfire, say it out loud and where people can see it. And when you've heard whispered around our little campfire, proclaim it on the housetops. Back then, all the housetops were flat. You got on a housetop, you saw everything. And he's saying, talk about it. Go, go talk. That's the place they're gonna hear you the most if you, get up on your, if you get up on your roof. In other words, it's good and it is right to talk about God's word. Praise will ever be on my... That's exactly what he's talking about here. Great selection there. That's exactly what he's talking about. Now, in the final three verses, the psalmist fully expresses his utter, he just goes for it now. This is his utter delight for God's word. He says that it gives him as much delight or joy as all riches might. I just saw on the internet today that someone just won the 400 and something million dollar Powerball thing or whatever. What he is, and instantly, you know, when you read that, you go, what would I do, what would I do? You know, I was doing that. But he says that, this gives him more. 
you know what? I could, I could, that would be, that, there's some good things about that, but man, to know you, I'm, the, the delight that I have in knowing God's word is amazing. And because it brings him so much delight, look what he says. He's going he's to meditate on it. He's going to fix his eyes on it and he's not going to forget it. What's happening here is this psalmist is saying, I am going to make God's word a priority. Not being a Christian, not church attendance, not Bible study attendance, all good things. Those are great. But my focus is going to be on God's word. That's what's important. Man, I want to have that kind of passion for God's word, don't you? I really want that. That is amazing. Well, at the beginning of this sermon, I said that the only when we view God's word as the ultimate authority of lives in our lives will we find true fulfillment in this life. So if that's the case, though, if that really is the case, how do we practically go about getting to a place or just reminding ourselves so we don't forget because we've been walking with the Lord a while and we just gotten complacent, how we place where, because we are God's word, how are we going to experience, how can we continue to experience this blessed life that the psalmist talked about, this goodness and grace, the power to overcome temptation and to sin, and this utter delight in God? First, well, like I said, it means cultivating a richer and deeper appreciation for the importance and the value of of God's word in our lives. Let me say that again. It means cultivating a richer and a deeper appreciation for the importance and the value of God's word in our lives. And you know how that's going to happen? I got a list of 50 things. No. Here's how it's going to happen. By spending time in it. That's how we grow to love God's word. That's how we come to appreciate it by spending time in it. And I'm talking 20 hours a day. I'm not talking about that crazy insane. I'm just talking about spending time in God's word, making it a discipline in your life. And just a side note, I always want to tell you, a good practice, this is for any time you're going to be in anything that's a spiritual experience, like coming to church, whatever. A good practice for getting the most out of your time in God's word this, little, this isn't a secret. This is a really good, just a great habit, is to pray. And ask the Holy Spirit first to illuminate God's word. Ask him. That's his job. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He illuminates. He helps us to understand what we're reading. Pray and ask God, help me to understand, Holy Spirit, your, this, your, what your, this word has to say. Illuminate my heart. Illuminate my mind. Before you even begin, come to church that way. Before you walk in that door or after you sit down here, say, Spirit of God, illuminate me, help me to see what, what you have for me here. We come up with a ton of things on our mind in here. Agendas, different things. I'm all, I'm usually going around doing stuff right before this, so I gotta go, stop. Spirit, Holy Spirit, what do you have for us today? Well, the next thing it means, it means is disciplining ourselves to make it a priority to take the time to regularly meet with God's word. And not just to rush through it, not just to have your, this is what I do for my devotions and I get through it. Not so we can just check it off and go, okay, my, di- my day's not going to be so bad because I read the Bible today. That's not, that's not what he's saying here at all. He's, what he's saying, I love what uh, he's saying, what I, the best words I could find was the great evangelist George Mueller he said this, another long quote, but I thought it was a great way to end our time here. He says, the first thing to be concerned about is not how much I might serve the Lord or how I might glorify the Lord, 
but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the word of God and to meditating on it. What is the food of the inner man? Not the simple reading of the word of God so that it only passes through our mind just as water runs through a pipe, but considering what we read, pondering over it and applying it to our hearts. Well, like I said at the beginning, my goal for our time here this morning is that what we will all go away with a richer and a deeper appreciation for the importance and the value of God's word in our lives. My prayer for all of us is that we will all fall deeper and deeper in love with God's word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. And I pray that this morning all of us would get even more of a sense of how important it is to not just be in your word because that's what Christians are supposed to do, but to carve out, to start making a habit of spending time with you, to become more intimate with you because we're knowing you and we're allowing the truth of your word, of your commandments, your statutes, all these things to penetrate who we are so that we can see ourselves the way you see us. Thank you that you see us that way, and it's because of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.